It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Terry Wilcox, co-founder and CEO of Patients Rising. Normally on this podcast, we interview people living with chronic illness and disability. But every once in a while, something comes to my attention that feels worth focusing an episode on outside of what we normally do, and this is absolutely one of those occasions. Patients Rising is a nonprofit organization that is focused on helping patients get the care they deserve. They support patients and caregivers in a variety of ways, but actually have a patient helpline, a phone number you can call if you are having an access issue, if you're unable to access the care that you need. That phone number is 1-800-685-2654. Or you can email Patients Rising at help at patientsrising.org. The reason I'm so excited to be featuring Patients Rising on the podcast today is that I know what it's like from a patient's perspective to need healthcare and not know how to get it. Patients Rising focuses on rare and chronic disease patients, people who the healthcare system often doesn't know how to help. So if you are stuck in your medical journey, if you don't know where to go next, don't know where to turn, you can call this helpline and talk to a real human being who can help give you some ideas. On the podcast today, we will also cover topics like getting new insurance and how you can become a patient advocate. So obviously, these are hugely important topics to this podcast. I'm very excited to have Terry on the show this week, and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. The new bonus episode for our Patreon community is now available, and this was a really great episode this month. Andy and I discussed my new diagnosis of small fiber neuropathy. I still can't believe that I have two diagnoses after years of having none. So exciting. So we got to talk about that. And then we also talked about Andy's upcoming surgery for her pituitary adenoma, and it ended up being you know, podcast therapy. Podcasting is so often therapy because, you know, when else do you just sit down to talk to someone for an hour at a time? Uh, And it definitely happened this week on the bonus episode. It's a very special, very personal episode that I'm really excited to share with our Patreon community of listeners who are supporting this show financially. If you're interested in joining our Patreon community, you can do so for as little as $2 per month which gains you access to our monthly bonus episodes. We also have a $7 per month tier and a $25 per month tier. Each tier comes with different levels of recognition on the podcast and gifts, but everybody gains access to our monthly bonus episodes. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this podcast at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your continued support is deeply, deeply appreciated. Head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to learn more. This episode is also funded through a charitable grant from the Stim Punks Foundation. This is an amazing nonprofit that supports neurodivergent and disabled individuals. I highly recommend you check out their website, stimpunks.org, and you can even apply to their creator grant yourselves. I'm so grateful that Major Pain is the recipient of the September 2023 creator grant. Thank you to the Stim Punks. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to help support it, there are several amazing ways to do so. That includes leaving us a positive rating and review, following us on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, or signing up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. You can learn all about the great ways to support this show on our website at majorpainpodcast.com support. 
I'll remind you as always that my guests and I are not medical professionals, so please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, let's learn about the Patients Rising nonprofit with their co-founder and CEO, Terry Wilcox. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you, Jesse, for having me. Yeah, I'm real excited to talk to you today. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a couple months now. So I'm thrilled to get to pick your brain about a very important topic today. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit. So Terry, why don't you tell us about yourself? My name is Terry Wilcox. I am the co-founder with my husband and the CEO of Patients Rising, which is an advocacy organization that focuses on all patients but specifically um, rare and chronic disease patients and their access and affordability issues around uh, around healthcare. Yeah, um, wow. That's really sort of what our sweet spot is. We, we really focus on the access issues and a lot of access issues have to do with, you know, benefit design or how, how your insurance is designed or you just can't afford it. Like it's just gotten so expensive. It's just an affordability issue. And then one of the other things we advocate for in that piece is more transparency so that people can see what they're paying for mm. and kind of better understand their coverage. Wow. Um, a lot of times they make it so confusing that it's easy for you to give up. I, I just did it the other day so, <laughs> um, on one thing, one in particular thing, you know, so. Yeah, I'm thrilled to talk about this. I mean, I've lived through this from the patient side and just, I think about this all the time, how hard it is to get access to good healthcare. Even if you have good benefits, that's just step one. You know, finding a doctor who's even willing to run tests, who's willing to listen to you. Uh, there's so many barriers in the way of someone who's, let's say, undiagnosed, like I have been for most of my life. Uh, to get across that finish line, to get a diagnosis and to find treatment, it can feel impossible. And so many people give up and it's just so unfair and it breaks my heart. So anything that we can learn today about paths that patients can take to try to navigate this system is going to be hugely, hugely important. I'd love to get to know you a little bit uh, as a person as well. What brought you to this type of work? I do have an interesting story there. I actually started my career in Los Angeles working at a video game network called oh. G4. <laughs> G4. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Producing segments and booking celebrities for award shows and segments on this interesting little quirky show called Attack of the Show. And I have seen I it. Doing all of these. Yeah, you see, I yeah, probably went, back like, in the oh, day. Maybe Jesse's heard of some of these things that I used to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was in my mid 30s at the time. And I was like, wow, I need to uh, do something else because nobody buys me as a video game producer. I really only play Pac-Man. <laughs> so it was not uh, working for me. And But I loved it. And I you know, continued to do a lot of that work. But I wanted to do segment producing. And I bought a bunch of equipment and said, I'm going to start a production company. And my dad ran a cancer clinic at the time. And he said, well, you ought to do patient stories. You ought to... Mm -hmm these stories, these people are amazing. And that's what we did. I started a, a, a show called Understanding Cancer. And we went all over Tennessee and Arkansas and Mississippi and, you know, recorded these stories. Then the economy fell out and we didn't have any more stories to do because we didn't have any more funding to do them. 
And I ended up going to work for a woman named Selma Schimmel, who started the first organization for young adults with cancer. It's called Vital Options. I traveled all over the world for about seven years with her. We interviewed um, key opinion leaders at major institutions all over the country. Um, Unfortunately, Selma passed away in 2014, and I still wanted to be doing that advocacy. My husband and I moved to Washington, D.C. and um, founded Patients Rising uh, because we st- I still wanted to be working with advocates. I wanted to be doing um, policy in D.C. I, w- I love it. I do love the policy piece because, like I said, the access issues and the affordability issues, if patients can't afford new innovations, if patients can't afford the health care they need and they can't get the access to it, then what are we doing? There's nothing more frustrating as a patient than understanding that there's something that might be helpful that you can't get. I mean, the, the, it's it's horrific. It's, you know, it's like, where's our human decency? I'm a human being. I am sick. I need help. You have help, but you won't give it to me because of some random wording in my insurance plan. And if I were to go out of pocket, it's $10,000. And I'm not working because I'm sick. So what am I supposed to do? The whole system is so backwards and so infuriating, which brings me to my mm. next question. I, I know that you don't have a chronic illness of your own, but you do have a major pain. So Terry, what is your major pain? My major pain is bad benefit design. <laughs> it, it's, it's bad healthcare benefit design, really. I mean, from all angles. You know, I don't have a major pain per se. I mean, I have mild asthma, but a lot of people have mild asthma. You know, we're a very blessed family in the sense that, you know, we my husband takes a couple of generic medications and I have a rescue inhaler when I need it and I hardly ever need it. So, hmm. you know, as a general rule, we I do not have a chronic illness, but I do care for my stepmom. She's in like stage six Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. It cannot be understated how important caregivers are. Whenever this comes up, I just have the utmost respect for caregivers because it can be such a thankless job and it is something that is done purely out of love and something that no one else will do for the individual. Oftentimes, you know, who else is going to care for your stepmom? I think that's such an important piece of this because it gives you firsthand understanding about what the chronic illness and disability community might need. Although every person's needs are unique, uh, I do think that is such an important piece of this. Definitely. my And I would say in all of that, when you're talking about what I just said about my major pain, my other major pain is not understanding what you're going to be paying, what's going to be covered. Mm. Every time I walk to the pharmacy counter, for anyone in my family, it is a crapshoot what it is going to cost. Mm. I literally was charged $220 for a generic ear medication that literally should have been 20 bucks on Mark Cuban's cost plus drugs. Wow. I could have gone to get it. And I had insurance. That was for my son. Yeah. And ditto for my stepmom. I went to pick up some medications for her recently. It was going to be $170 for some generic cream that I pulled out GoodRx and got it down to 30. Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned two important things that people should know about GoodRx and Mark Cuban's cost plus drugs. These are things that I've heard about. Mark Cuban, of course, from Shark Tank, uh, yes. you know, this billionaire who has started a company to get uh, lower cost medication to people directly. And if you haven't looked into it yet, if you're a patient of any kind with expensive medication, it's definitely worth looking into. No, it definitely is. Both of these things are. I always tell everybody, if you go to the pharmacy counter and you think it sounds too high, 
especially if you have insurance, it probably is. Yeah. And if you don't have insurance and you don't have any kind of coupon or resource, get GoodRx, download it on your phone, and at least use that as a reference point for what it should cost. Mm. Right. I always use that as a reference point, whether I'm looking at my mother-in-law who lives with us, who's on Medicare, my stepmom also who's on Medicare. I, I look at the reference point and and I can realize, you know, how ridiculous the markup has now been for whatever it is. And, you know, really literally just put the thing in front of them and be like, nope, I'm going to pay this. <laughs> and sometimes they'll tell you, oh, well, we're not going to count it towards your insurance. If you use this, they won't count it towards your insurance. And I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. I'm not going to pay two or 300% more per, for something to try to reach a deductible. You don't want me to reach. Right. Right. I mean, it's not going it, to, it doesn't matter. They don't, they don't want me to reach a deductible. So why should I pay more trying to get there when they say, oh, we won't count it towards your deductible? So what? Yeah, absolutely. Who cares? Price. <laughs> Who cares? Who cares? Yeah. Unless you're like $200 away from being able to get your knee surgery to meet your deductible, then I say, okay, go ahead and do it. But you know, you really have to be really doing some math in your head and really following that because some, some people do. There's a big uptick in things like elective surgeries that can w be postponed hmm. to the end of the year because people will get to the, you know, they'll use up their deductible so that everything will be covered for whatever this surgery that is covered, but it wouldn't have been covered fully if they had not met their deductible. So there, there are reasons to do it that way. And People who are doing that generally know what they're doing. But, and Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs, it's online. But now all Kroger stores, you can take the Mark Cuban price and you can get it in the Kroger. Really? Pharmacy. Wow. And that's, I think that's 2,700 pharmacies, 22 or 20. It's a lot of pharmacies and um, that's huge. And there's also several independent pharmacies that are doing that. So now you can get the Mark Cuban price in a brick and mortar store. I always encourage everyone to, you know, shop around. You didn't used to have to do that as much for healthcare, but now I, I say do it for everything. Act like you're a consumer now with healthcare because you are. Yeah. You are. Do you have any sense of how things got to be this way? Is it just corporate greed overriding human decency? I think some. there's some of that to it. I also think that there is just, we are operating with a, healthcare delivery system, when I say delivery, I mean benefit design and all the things from the 20th century. And we're almost a quarter of a way through, quarter of a way through the 21st century. Okay. So people are still thinking we're in 1997 or six, and we're actually, you know, about to be in 2024. <laughs> so I, I think that's part of it. Also, you know, insurance companies have never wanted to pay for drugs. They've never wanted to pay for drugs because of the innovation in more biologics and other. There's been a lot more cost shifting to patients. Deductibles have gone up. You can talk to an economist, you know, a, a more liberal economist or more conservative economist, and they'll give you 900 reasons on both sides. And I'm sure there's it's all false somewhere in the middle. And I'm not going to do an economist lecture right now, <laughs> but um, you know, on on drug pricing. There is something in between that. Everything has gone up. And if you also, if you look at things like United Healthcare has bought a pharmacy benefit manager and Express Scripts is now with um, Cigna and Aetna is with CVS and they're all one company, 
I think that consolidation is also troubling. Yeah. Um, there's just, there's many factors and I'm not, uh, my brain is not big enough to actually determine what those factors are. But all I know is more costs are being shifted to patients, more sh- costs are being shifted to employers. And I always say there's only two payers in this country. They're actually patients and employers. And you're even seeing a shift in how employers are reacting because employers were tired of getting bills that said, you know, it would be like an invoice that said healthcare, $87,000, June. (laughs) What did that pay for? You know, like what, what exactly did that pay for? There was no, there's no breakdown. It's just kind of a, you know, so there's more and more employers now are doing um, self-designed, you know, employer sponsored plans. That's troubling, can be troubling depending on what they, how they do it. Some are good. Some are not so good. You can hear both sides from patients all over the place, but there's a major shift because of the cost, cost shifting. I mean, it's just, it just is. That's, that's been the number one thing. And I don't know whether it's subsidies um, or not enough subsidies or too many subsidies or taking advantage of, you know, whatever in the market, but it's definitely something that I am feeling a major shift from folks who want it, want it to change. Yeah. Fascinating. Afford healthcare. I mean, you know, this. I always say people who are using their healthcare every single week or month are the people who really understand what I just said the most. Yeah, I am. I am so lucky. I I got so 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 lucky with my healthcare because I live in Washington State, and I got Apple Care when I stopped working because of my chronic illness, which is you know basically state subsidized Medicaid for individuals who cannot afford healthcare, and it's free. And the coverage is actually really good. That is what has gotten me through this period where I haven't been working while I was undiagnosed, going to doctor after doctor, having all these expensive tests done. There was a couple of things that it wouldn't cover here and there. But overall, I just kind of can't believe that that's the situation I was in. You know, there's people I talk to who are in other states in a similar situation where they're not working because of a mystery chronic illness. And they just can't get anything done. You know, everything is so expensive. If they don't have insurance, there's no option like what I have in other states. So, you know, I tell people, move to Washington. (laughs) I know, just pack up and leave while you're chronically ill. Come to a state. pack up and leave where you are and come to Washington. No, that's great. Obviously, that's um... not great advice. But, um, But yeah, I mean, there are great programs out there, but I think they are few and far between. So, so where do you start? What do you do? If you are a patient, if uh, let's say that I'm a new patient that comes to you, I don't live in Washington. I have a chronic mystery illness. I need to go to doctor after doctor and get some diagnostics done and try to figure out what is even happening with my health. And in that time, I can't even work. What do, where do I start? Well, the first place you start is in your state, just like you just said. I mean, that's the very first place you need to start. Now, one of the things that, and a plug, I will do a plug right now. Um, <laughs> we do have a helpline called oh. the patient helpline. It used to be called Patients Rising Concierge. And then we decided that that sounded too snooty, like we were a paid service. <laughs> the staff came to me and they were like, we want to call it the patient helpline. And I was like, okay, let's call it the patient helpline. So we have the patient helpline now. You, you can send us an email. There's a phone number on the website, um, patientsrising.org. You can find all the information about the helpline there. But we literally will help you with anything. So if you wow. call us and you say... I live in Alabama and I am struggling. I can't work because of this, this, this. This is my situation. Our helpline is actually run 
by patients who used to be on SSDI. So it's run by patients. They really are empathetic. Sam and Levi are fantastic. Um, they answer every message personally or, or call people back and they they stick with it until they find some kind of a solution. I always say, look, we don't have money to give you. It's That's not what we do. But we want to give very good direction. So I say we're, we're not the last call that somebody may have to make in order to get what they need, but we try to give you impeccable directions for where to go next. That is like a dream come true for so many people to have one phone number to call to get started because every everyone's situation is so unique, you know, to, to give blanket advice about where to start is impossible. But to say, hey, call this number and we'll figure it out for you. That is amazing. That is massively important. Have you ever worked in shaping policy? We're starting to. We haven't really been big enough or had, but we're starting to. You know, we have some really specific issues that we're working on, that we're fighting towards, that we're you know, pushing ahead. We really want to do more work and more legislation and transparency and openness for patients and consumers in, in benefit design. Um, more transparency at the pharmacy counter, more transparency at the hospital, tr- more transparency everywhere. And you're starting to see that. But that is some of the things that we're working on. Um, we've been working this year on an, a bill, maybe two in the weeds for your audience, but it's banning something called a quality adjusted life year, which is a quality. And a quality is basically a metric. So say you have a disease, your life is automatically worth worth less than one when they're figuring out the economic math of whether or not your life is worth, you know, providing this expensive treatment to. Oh, wow. Does that make sense? That's horrifying. So, um, you know, and on the other side, in their defense, they say, no, it's not. We're not devaluing the person's life. We're devaluing the treatment. But in getting to the devaluing of the treatment, you're saying the person's only worth 0.62 <laughs> or whatever. You know what I mean? So it is a it is a discriminatory metric that should not be used. Yeah. And many people on both sides of the aisle agree on that. Um, and I'm not going to get into the weeds about all the other semantics of it, but it is a bill that we've really um, focused on. We've been actually been working on QualiBan since we founded Patients Rising in you know 2015. So it's been a something that we're we've been really focused on for quite a while. Wow what is the what is the history of your organization? How has it grown and changed since 2015? Well, when we started out, we were very focused on countering discriminatory access. You know, and I don't know that we've really changed our focus all that much as far as focusing on it. We've always focused on access. But what has changed is our expansion of what we're doing. When we launched, we we didn't have a helpline. We didn't really help anybody directly. We had no direct support. So that has changed. Now it has grown exponentially. We've served more than 4,000 patients the last I was given the numbers. Wow. That's been amazing. And we have grown more in our reach uh, in the policy space. You know, we've definitely expanded our capabilities on Capitol Hill and state houses, you know, all over the place. So that has that has changed significantly. When we started out, we were basically doing story collection, patient story collection and a blog. And then we, you know, marched down in a couple of years. And I was like, I want 10 patient stories in every district all over the country so that we can, you know, share patient stories on access and affordability at the mo- at a moment's notice that are impactful and 
We're still not there yet. We don't have 10 in every district, but we're working on it. There's different types of patient advocates, I always say. There's the advocates who are passive. I call them the click and call advocates. If you send them an email, they may, you know, write a letter or respond or do something or make a call, but they're not necessarily like the ones that are going to come to your fly-in or they're not going to necessarily um, engage in a real active way. So what we want is 10 in every district that are active, Mm -hmm. the super advocates. And of course you need a giant list of the passive advocates who will click and call when you need things done. Um, there's a there's a good ba- a good balance of both is is the way to go. Yeah, can you tell me a little about some of the barriers that patients are experiencing out in the world and how you might help people to navigate some of those barriers or even break through some of those barriers? Um, well, there's several. I mean, we have tons of advocates who just came to our fly-in, um, which we have every June here in Washington D.C. We just had our second one. We're gonna we have already set up the dates for our one next year. It's the We the Patients fly-in. All the stories are access barrier stories. It's bad benefit design. They've either been denied, they've been sent surprise bills. There's all sorts of reasons. And I can give one example. There's, I don't know how many in your audience have heard of something called a copay accumulator, but um, basically it was a tactic that insurers put in place. I don't know, I would say they started doing it around 2016, 2017, where the pharma companies were providing like a grant because the deductibles were getting so high, patients couldn't afford their medicine or anything. They couldn't, they would never reach the deductible. So the pharma companies were like, okay, the deductibles are going up. How can we help them access the medicine? How can we help them get access and maintain access to state medicine? So we're going to give a grant up to the amount of the deductible. Well, all of a sudden out of nowhere to all of these patients, they didn't count it towards the deductible anymore. It wasn't counted. So because it wasn't counted towards the deductible anymore, all of a sudden, so the patient would go and pick up their medicine in say the first part of the year, but then all of a sudden the money from the pharma company would run out and then their deductible would still be sitting there needing to be paid. So they would show up on some random months to pick up their medicine and it would be like, that'll be $964, please. (sighs) You know, and it'd be like, what do you mean be $964? Like it's, well, you haven't met your deductible. And so that's called a copay accumulator. It is infuriating. We had one patient in Texas, and this is very common, especially if you have um, self-employed individuals who have to get marketplace plans off the exchanges. If they make too much money to qualify for a subsidy, then you end up like this person I'm about to tell you, which is there's an $8,100 deductible. Their insurance for a 50-ish woman is almost $700 a month. Wow. For the, you know, premium, the monthly premium is $700 a month. Okay. They have a medication they pick up for a chronic disease every month and a copay accumulator was implemented. All of a sudden they couldn't afford anything. Well, it ended up that the pharma company did end up working it out behind the scenes. This is where transparency gets very wonky because you're not sure what's really exactly going on. But they work it out. So all of a sudden she's not paying anything for the drug. Her deductible is not met. So her deductible is still $8,100, right? But she is getting the drug, which is great, I guess. She's like, okay, I'm getting my medication. But she basically had a $15,000 a year catastrophic plan because she couldn't use it. She paid cash to her doctors because it was cheaper than paying the rate with the deductible. 
So she would just, whenever she had to go to her doctor's visit, she would just pay cash. So she was paying almost $700 a month in a premium, getting a, a medication somehow. She was getting it, but it was like, she was not sure. She was like, is this, when is this going to end? Like who's doing it? You know, in some months she would be on the phone for hours making sure she got it. So it was like time away from her work. So that's um, one of the things that we've, you know, advocated for quite a bit. There is copay accumulator legislation. There's a lot of work on things called pharmacy benefit managers, which is the go-between between between the pharma company and the patient. And, you know, they, they negotiate in the best interest of the patient, though I argue that all the time. I do not think they do. I actually don't think the patient enters their mind when they go in the room. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that 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 ever happens, but um, especially with some of the the numbers that come up, but um, sometimes they do, you know, there's, there's a, I I always say there's many patients who are happy and they'll tell you, I'm so lucky, you know, like you, things have been covered, you know, state of Washington is taking care of me. And I'm always like, those stories need to be told too. Yeah. You know, the, the, the winning stories need to be told too. It doesn't just have to be all the bad news stories. Yeah. Um, you know, I think patients should be shouting from the rooftops when their employers and their insurance companies are getting it right. You know, just like I say, you know, when pharma companies are getting it right, whenever any company's getting it right, you know, we rely on these companies, many of us, uh, for our insurance and for our health care. So when they're getting it right, they should be applauded because we want them to do more of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Although that story you just shared is a little scary for me, the thought of losing this state-sponsored insurance because I am doing so much better. The prospect of going back to work is back on the table for me, which it hasn't been for almost seven years at this point. But that means I would lose my state-sponsored insurance and have to uh, either get employer insurance or marketplace insurance with a chronic illness that requires a lot of medication. Uh, so <laughs> like I'm taking so much medication right now and right now it's all free through this state sponsored insurance, but it won't be once I get on some other form of insurance. So that, that's a very daunting thought to have to re-enter that marketplace. No, it's not. I mean, there's many things I would recommend to someone like yourself, Jesse, I, I would say, you know, start looking at the, obviously make a list of the medications you're on and start looking at you know, what your monthly nut is on average, you know, study good RX, look at it, even though you're not paying for it now, start to know what it costs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the right questions to ask when you go in with your employer, when you're talking about the health insurance piece, you should definitely be asking questions about the drug coverage plan. Are there many offerings? Are there just one? We have a whole list actually on our website as well. We have a, we have a Patients Rising Advocacy Masterclass which is basically for super advocates who want to take a 15-week course and really learn how to be a patient advocate. It's a fantastic course. We've graduated more than 200 um, advocates from that course. It's a commitment. You know, it's not easy. You don't just watch a couple of videos and you, you know, you're done. It's, it is a commitment. And then we also have a a self-directed version of that. That's just for self-advocacy for stuff like this. What do I, you know, what do I think about? What are my questions when I start a new job? Um, you know, what questions should I be looking at in my healthcare? What rights do I have if a, if a certain thing happens to me, if I have to do step therapies, say, where they say, oh, you have to go fail on this drug, but your doctor is sitting there saying, well, this drug's not going to work, but we have to pay, you have to pay for it and you have to take it and your body has to reject it. And then I can tell the insurance company. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's happened to me so many times. <laughs> that this drug failed you. And some patients, it's not just one drug. I mean, if it was one drug, it'd be one thing. But for some patients, it's several steps. That's what's called step therapy. Yeah. I've had several drugs where my doctor wanted to give me a drug and said, okay, well, you have to try this drug first and then tell me it didn't work. And then I can give you the drug that you actually should be taking. That's happened to me on at least like three different occasions. <laughs> so yeah, even with the insurance you have, I mean, there's just protocols in place. You know, Texas did a really interesting thing where they basically, uh, doctors who had really good track records with prescribing the right medicines at the right time for the patients in certain instances got like a gold star. I, I don't know that it's really a gold <laughs> star, but you know what I'm saying? Like they got a, they got a credential that let their prescriptions be solid first time out, so to speak. Interesting. That's how I understand it to be is that the doctor gets a, a kind of a pass where their patients don't have to go through all of this. Cause it's like, he's like, look, I've, you know, I've been doing this for X number of years. What, you know, why should I have to, you know, prove myself over and over and over again that I actually know what I'm doing um, when I'm prescribing these medications? Because the people, you know, insurance companies now are using AI to reject, Ugh. to reject claims. That's horrifying. They use doctors to reject claims who just simply have an MD after their name, but they may not know anything about, say, MS, right? which is the drug they're rejecting. Yeah, I've gotten some rejection letters for, I mean, back way back when, when I first went on short-term disability, uh, I, I had been misdiagnosed with Lyme disease when I first left work. I mean, there was a reason to think I might have it. There was a false positive test. So my doctor's like, well, we just got to try this because it's all we have. And the insurance company from my old employer reached out and said, you don't have Lyme disease. Literally, it said, you should go back to work or you will lose your benefits entirely. So I lost my benefits entirely because I physically could not work because I was so sick. And yes, I didn't have Lyme disease, but that extra step of like, hey, let's figure out what this person has so we can help them get back to work was not even in the picture. It was just, oh, well, you're, you're not sick. Go back to work. When I was extremely sick, so it just couldn't happen. You know, getting that sort of a impersonal gaslighting letter from what, right. whatever doctor that this insurance company was using was devastating at the time. I mean, I, I, it's hard to describe what that feels like as a patient to be so sick that you can't work, desperately trying to go back to work but not be able to, um, and then have your employer's insurance company basically devalue your humanity and your own understanding of your own body and say that you're wrong, go back to work. I mean, that, that was one of the low points for me of this journey. Wow, that's terrible. I hate to hear that, you know, when patients get those letters and it happens all the time. Yeah. The denial of claims is a business model because most patients, when they get a rejection letter, do not fight it. Right. And that's, that's the thing that I have learned when I then applied for disability. I've been denied twice already. That's why I have a hearing coming up and I've learned not to take it personally. The first breakup that you have when with your first love is so hard. And then subsequent breakups, it's like, okay, I'll find someone else. You know, <laughs> you start to, you start to get good at the rejection. And that's so crucial with, with chronic illness and for applying for any sort of disability or, you know, benefits, you're going to be rejected because they want you to stop. I wish I'd known years ago that disability lawyers are generally free and they get paid if they get you disability. I mean, that's at least how it works here in Washington state. I didn't look into that for so long because I'm like, there's no way I can afford a lawyer. I'm not even working. But by the time I got a lawyer, he says, well, yeah, you don't pay me anything unless I get you disability. 
I was just so wrong about that. And I wish I had known that. Be prepared for rejection after rejection, because that's the way the system works. You're probably going to end up having to get a lawyer and, and go to court. And you just have to kind of steal yourself for that. And it's so overwhelming when you're sick to have to deal with that. But that's just the way it is. And we just have to kind of get through that so we can continue to exist. Yeah, it's really important that um, that patients know that. It's easy to say no, because no doesn't get people in a lot of trouble. They don't get in trouble for having costs, you know, their company a lot of money for saying yes, mm. right? Yeah. So no is the easiest answer. Is this the type of stuff that that you help patients to kind of wrap their brains around when they call in? Yeah, I mean, they definitely do, especially when you're talking about two, um, you know, Levi and and Sam, you know, they were on SSDI. Yeah. That's a process. Yeah. That they, you know, have gone through. So they understand what you're talking about when you're thinking, you know, hearings and rejections and resubmissions. And one of them lives in New York and one of them lives in Pennsylvania. So they even have two different states perspectives to, mm. to kind of look at. So. Yeah. So cool. What an exciting program. I'm so excited that you offer that yeah. and that we can share that with our audience here because I know that there are people listening who can use that, <laughs> which is really, really exciting. So this is a very broad question. I don't know if this is answerable, but for people who are looking at the healthcare exchange, you obviously have a lot of knowledge about insurance. Are there companies that you recommend over other companies? Are there insurance companies that you think are a safer bet as far as getting equitable insurance? It depends on the state. Yeah. <laughs> It does depend on the state because ironically, there's jurisdictions. But when you're talking about the exchanges, I mean, obviously the blues tend to be pretty good. They reject just like everybody else, but not in the same way. Some of the major, you know, United Cigna, Aetna. They call all the major ones. They actually, the, the acronym for all the major um, insurance companies is the BUCAS. It's Blue Cross is the first one. United, Cigna, Aetna, Humana. I think it is. I think those are the five. The Bucas. <laughs> um, but I've always had really good luck with um, Blue Cross hmm. plans. Anthem plans have generally been pretty good. Awesome. Um, That's a great tip. Thank you. But you may not have that one. So then you just have to do the research. You have to yeah. ask for the plan documents what's covered in real English and ask about your medications. Yeah. What are you on? Is it covered? Do they have copay accumulators? How does that work with the deductible? There's so many questions to ask. It's you really have to be a savvy consumer when you're shopping for your health insurance now, especially yeah. if you're on exchanges because you're the one picking it. You're locked in in a little different fashion, obviously, if you're at working at a job because yeah. you have to take one of the plans that they offer, whatever that may be. And they may only have one plan. And is that something that your hotline can help people navigate? Well, we can take a look at documents with them. I mean, or they can recommend a patient advocate who's, you know, reads insurance documents in a, you know, broader way than say maybe Levi or Sam do and, and give you the right questions to ask. I mean, we don't necessarily take those documents and, and study them and then, you know, spurt out an answer. We would never want to be actually responsible for telling people what healthcare to pick for themselves because mm. we we don't know we don't have all the information right i mean that we have whatever they're willing to give us yeah so you know what i mean but i think it's it, 
you know, only a patient really can sit down or a caregiver, you know, depending on the situation and really go through what's covered, what isn't, and figure out the cost analysis. And sometimes you can find really good um, insurance brokers that will help you Mm. and some not so much. Yeah. Some just want to sell you the plan because that's what they're there to do. Yeah. So that's a, that can be a crapshoot. Yeah, totally. It sounds like the thing that you are really set up to help with is access barriers. If someone Mm -hmm. is having an access barrier and they don't know where to turn, then the patient's rising hotline is a good place to call. And if they're ha- if they're having transportation issues, hmm. which is an access barrier, but that's a very specific niche thing that we've really been able to corner in many ways, especially in the harder to reach areas. Yeah. How does one become a patient advocate? Hmm. Well, first you need to decide what kind of patient advocate you want to become. There's ways to be a patient advocate. You can advocate for patients in your local community. There are I can guarantee you any number of very tiny local regional nonprofits in your own district or town or area that are struggling and need your help Mm. (laughs) for sure. And not just about money, but volunteering, understanding, helping get the word out if they're providing resources. It's so hard. I mean, we are so surrounded by noise in this day and age because so much is coming at us right all the time as far as information. So that's one is you can, there's all kinds of things you can do locally. And I encourage people to do that. I encourage people to find out what is in their region from a healthcare perspective, because those organizations often really struggle. Second, um, the Patients Rising Advocacy Masterclass. Yeah. (laughs) I will uh, promote that. It's free. Oh, wow. You can go to patientsrising.org and register. You can just, you know, look for the learning center and the masterclass link will be there. And that is a 15-week, very involved course. And if you're really, you know, want to take it to the next level, then I would recommend coming to Washington, D.C. and doing a fly-in, whether it's our fly-in, which is in June, or or a fly-in of a disease-specific organization that you support. You know, many of the major diseases have national organizations here in D.C. Many of them have fly-ins that are disease-specific every year. But I always say Patients Rising, we kind of, we cover really broad access issues. So we often cover a lot of what the disease-specific organizations are covering and then other things that they won't touch because they're not disease-specific enough. It varies, but I highly recommend that. And I recommend, you know, if you're in district and you can't travel to Washington, D.C., then I would try to meet your congressman. Hmm. Sit down with your congressperson. Tell them your story. Tell them what's important to you. Do it in their district. Do it in August. They're all home. They're all supposed to be home. Uh, A few months back, uh, my partner Andy and I, uh, Andy is on the board of the ADL here in Washington, and they did a lobby day, and I joined them and, you know, went to the state capitol and talked to, you know, members of the legislature. It was something that I had no idea that people could just do. <laughs> I mean, you have to set yeah. up appointments and and you have to, you know, th- there are some channels to go through, but they are looking to talk to their constituents and find out what matters to them. And, you know, you can directly influence the thought process of the people who make policy. It is something that is possible. It's something I didn't really ever think about doing before. You can do that. They love to hear from you. And if you and always have a bipartisan heart when you go about healthcare stuff, I say that to everybody. Mm. You must have a bipartisan heart. You must. Because honestly, there are champions on all sides of the aisle that are supportive 
of patient access issues. And I tell advocates, I've actually had advocates, you know, they'll call and they'll be like, I can't work with this person because of blah, 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 blah. And I'm, I will be like, yes, you can. You have to keep that in mind. The only people you can vote for are the people who are on your voting card when you walk in your booth every voting day. And that's when you can make those personal choices. But when you're talking about, you know, bipartisan advocacy, you must have a bipartisan heart. And whatever you don't agree with that person on has to go somewhere else um, because there are many great champions on both sides that you have to look for. And you can't, if it, you will not be a successful advocate if you cannot do that. And I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah, great advice. Wow, I've learned a ton today. Is there anything that you'd like to touch on that we haven't covered yet? No, I don't, I don't think so, unless you have any other questions for me. This was great fun, Jesse. Yeah, so fun. You've, you've answered a ton of my questions. Um, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on the podcast. What a great episode. I'm so excited to be able to share all this valuable information. Please tell our audience where they can go to uh, connect with Patients Rising or anything else that you'd like to plug. Well, please visit our website at patientsrising.org. You can sign up for our newsletters. You can reach out to our helpline. You can sign up for our masterclass. You can send us an email and ask us a question. Um, Whatever the case may be, that's where you can find out everything about our organization right there on Patients Rising. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, any of the usual channels, Instagram. Um, Please join us. Amazing. Terry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I understand that you have a podcast of your own. I do. We have the Patients Rising podcast. It's not that hard to find. And we also have the Healthcare Policy Pop. It comes out every Tuesday and Thursday. And it's very much aimed at federal federal legislation and federal healthcare um, policy. Um, but that's really short. It, it, and that's a really great sort of pop of educational health policy for folks. And it's really easy and relatable. Um both of them are. So if you're if you're new to policy, I, re- I encourage you to check us out and take a listen. Awesome. And what sort of topics do you cover on the Patients Rising podcast? Patients, right. We often have patient interviews there, um, you know, patient story interviews. But we do focus on, you know, what I've said, patients rising through lines are access, affordability and transparency. So that is what we're focused on. And we talk about health policy in a very relatable way and not just federal. Federal is a lot of it because federal's you know, where the big things happen. But we also do focus on some state issues, access issues around insurance, a lot of the stuff we've talked about today. So, and we focus on what I call healthcare disruptors for people like, you know, Mark Cuban, Cost Plus Drugs and others who are disrupting the healthcare landscape. Awesome. Well, Terry, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Um, Super, super valuable to have you on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. I really appreciate it as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.
Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Pain Podcast.